Section 32 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lonnie Decker. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 1. Book the Third. Chapter 4. Another Form of Desert. It was Weymouth which he had just entered. Weymouth then was not the respectable and fine Weymouth of today. Ancient Weymouth did not present, like the present one, an irreproachable rectangular quay with an inn and a statue in honor of George the Third. This resulted from the fact that George the Third had not yet been born. For the same reason they had not yet designed on the slope of the green hill toward the east fashioned flat on the soil by cutting away the turf and leaving the bare chalk to the view, the white horse, an acre long, bearing the king upon his back, and always turning, in honor of George the Third, his tail to the city. These honors, however, were deserved. George the Third, having lost in his old age the intellect he had never possessed in his youth, was not responsible for the calamities of his reign. He was an innocent why not erect statues to him? Weymouth, a hundred and eighty years ago, was about as symmetrical as a game of spillikins in confusion. In legends it is said that Astaroth traveled over the world carrying on her back a wallet which contained everything, even good women in their houses. A pell-mell of sheds thrown from her devil's bag would give an idea of that irregular Weymouth. The good women in the sheds included the music hall remains as a specimen of those buildings. A confusion of wooden dens carved and eaten by worms, which carve in another fashion, shapeless, overhanging buildings, some with pillars, leaning one against the other for support against the sea wind, and leaving between them awkward spaces of narrow and winding channels, lanes, and passages, often flooded by the equinautical tides a heap of old grandmother houses crowded round a grandfather church. Such was Weymouth, a sort of old Norman village thrown up on the coast of England. The traveller who entered the tavern, now replaced by the hotel, instead of paying royally his twenty-five francs for a fried sole and a bottle of wine, had to suffer the humiliation of eating a pennyworth of soup made of fish, which soup, by the by, was very good. Wretched fare! The deserted child, carrying the foundling, passed through the first street, then the second, then the third. He raised his eyes, seeking in the higher stories and in the roofs a lighted window-pane, but all were closed and dark. At intervals he knocked at the doors. No one answered. Nothing makes the heart so like a stone as being warm between sheets. The noise and the shaking had at length awakened the infant. He knew this because he felt her suck his cheek. She did not cry, believing him her mother. He was about to turn and wander long, perhaps, in the intersections of the Scambridge lanes, where there were then more cultivated plots than dwellings, more thorn hedges than houses. But fortunately he struck into a passage which exists to this day near Trinity schools. This passage led him to a water brink where there was a roughly built quay with a parapet, and to the right he made out a bridge. It was the bridge over the way connecting Weymouth 
with Melcombe Regis, and under the arches of which the backwater joins the harbour. Weymouth, a hamlet, was then the suburb of Melcombe Regis, a city and port. Now Melcombe Regis is a parish of Weymouth. The village has absorbed the city. It was the bridge which did the work. Bridges are strange vehicles of suction which inhale the population and sometimes swell one river bank at the expense of its opposite neighbor. The boy went to the bridge, which at that period was a covered timber structure. He crossed it. Thanks to its roofing, there was snow snow on the planks. His bare feet had a moment's comfort as they crossed them. Having passed over the bridge, he was in Malcolm Regis. There were fewer wooden houses than stone ones here. He was no longer in the village. He was in the city. The bridge opened on a rather fine street called St. Thomas's Street. He entered it. Here and there were high carved gables and shop fronts. He set to knocking at the doors again. He had no strength left to call or shout. At Malcolm Regis, as at Weymouth, no one was stirring. The doors were all carefully double-locked. The windows were covered by their shutters, as the eyes by their lids. Every precaution had been taken to avoid being roused by disagreeable surprises. The little wanderer was suffering the indefinable depression made by a sleeping town. Its silence, as of a paralyzed ant's nest, made the head swim. All its lethargies mingle their nightmares. Its slumbers are a crowd and from its human bodies lying prone there arises a vapor of dreams. Sleep has gloomy associates beyond this life. The decomposed thoughts of the sleepers float above them in a mist which is both of death and of life, and combine with the possible, which has also, perhaps, the power of thought as it floats in space. Hence arise entanglements. Dreams, those clouds, interpose their folds and their transparencies over that star, the mind. Above those closed eyelids, where visions has taken place the sight, a sepulchral disintegration of outlines and appearances dilates itself into impalpability. Mysterious diffused existences amalgamate themselves with life on that border of death which sleep is. Those larvae and souls mingle in the air. Even he who sleeps not feels a medium press upon him full of sinister life. The sounding chimera in which he suspects a reality impedes him. The waking man, wending his way amidst the sleep, phantoms of others unconsciously pushes back passing shadows, has, or imagines that he has, a vague fear of adverse contact with the invisible and feels at every moment the obscure pressure of a hostile encounter which immediately dissolves. There is something of the effect of a forest in the nocturnal diffusion of dreams. This is what is called being afraid without reason. What a man feels, a child feels still more. The uneasiness of nocturnal fear, increased by the spectral houses, increased the weight of the sad burden under which he was struggling. He encountered Conicar Lane, and perceived at the end of that passage the backwater which he took for the ocean. He no longer knew in what direction the sea lay. He retraced his steps, struck to the left by Maiden Street, and returned as far as St. Albans Row.
There, by chance and without selection, he knocked violently at any house that he happened to pass. His blows, on which he was expending his last energies, were jerky and without aim, now ceasing altogether for a time, now renewed as if in irritation. It was the violence of his fever striking against the doors. One voice answered, that of time. Three o'clock tolled slowly behind him from the old belfry of St. Nicholas. Then all sank into silence again. That no inhabitant should have opened a lattice may appear surprising. Nevertheless, that silence is in a great measure to be explained. We must remember that in January 1790 there were just over a somewhat severe outbreak of the plague in London, and that the fear of receiving sick vagabonds caused a diminution of hospitality everywhere. People would not even open their windows for fear of inhaling the poison. The child felt the coldness of men more terribly than the coldest of night. The coldness of men is intentional. He felt a tightening on his sinking heart which he had not known on the open plains. Now he had entered into the midst of life and remained alone. This was the summit of misery, the pitiless desert he had understood. The unrelenting town was too much to bear. The hour, the strokes of which he had just counted, had been another blow. Nothing is so freezing in certain situations as the voice of the hour. It is a declaration of indifference. It is eternity saying, What does it matter to me? He stopped, and it is not certain that in that miserable minute he did not ask himself whether it would not be easier to lie down there and die. However, the little infant leaned her head against his shoulder and fell asleep again. This blind confidence set him onward again. He whom all supports were failing felt that he was himself a basis of support irresistible summons of duty. Neither such ideas nor such a situation belonged to his age. It is probable that he did not understand them. It was a matter of instinct. He did what he chanced to do. He set out again in the direction of Johnstone Row, but now he no longer walked. He dragged himself along. He left St. Mary's Street to the left, made zigzags through lanes, and at the end of a winding passage found himself in a rather wide-open space. It was a piece of wasteland not built upon, probably the spot where Chesterfield Place now stands. The houses ended there. He perceived the sea to the right, and scarcely anything more of the town to his left. What was to become of him? Here was the country again. To the east great inclined plains of snow marked out the wide slopes of Radipole. Should he continue this journey? Should he advance and re-enter the solitudes? Should he return and re-enter the streets? What was he to do between those two silences, the mute plain and the deaf city? Which of the two refusals should he choose? There is the anchor of mercy. There is also the look of piteousness. It was that look which the poor little despairing wanderer threw around him. All at once he heard a menace. End of section 32 Recording by Lonnie Decker